Good morning, and thank you for joining us as we are concluding our study of Genesis this week, but just for a while, as we begin a new series next week on freedom that we find in Christ. Today, we're going to be covering the second part of chapter 9, which is a lot of way, in a lot of ways has many different sermons in and of itself. We will unpack a lot of different topics in this short passage today, and because we haven't given an entire sermon to each one of these t- topics, we may not cover everything that you may want us to, but I hope we can major in the majors today as there will probably be some questions that are not answered, but we will continue to be emphasizing the point of this entire letter and this entire book known as the Bible because it's all about Jesus. So as my friend Scott would say, let's go. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Often God spoke about the covenant that God made earlier in this chapter with Noah and his sons, and here we have some of the names of those sons in particular. Verse 19, these were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the entire or whole earth. It was out of their relationships with their wives that the world was going to be populated again, and there would be people all over the world. Verse 20, 21, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Different commentators have different understanding of the meaning behind the man of the soil, or in some translations, the husbandman. But he was working and cultivating the earth, as was the plan from the beginning for Adam in the vineyard, which represents the fresh start that would take place after the flood. Noah then was cultivating this vineyard where wine would be fermented. Most theologians contend that this may be and probably is the first place that wine was produced. I guess. I don't know. But what I know is that Noah, while cultivating the vineyard, produced wine, and he had a bit too much of it. And the Bible says that he got drunk and was naked or naked in his tent, which is scandalous. I think we all understand this, but alcohol in and of itself is not evil. Like money, the love of alcohol, the exalting of, the use to become drunk or lose control is the sinful behavior that the Bible condemns over and over again. The scriptures don't call out social drinkers, they call out drunkards, those who identify alcohol with the sole purpose of becoming drunk. And Noah had drank so much that even a sense of modesty was out of the window as he passed out drunk and naked. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. This verse has been under scrutiny for years, and much of what I read when commentators talk about this, what they call out based on these words is pretty unrealistic, but they attempt to justify hatred towards certain sins without taking into account what actually happened. I won't say more than that because I think the interpretation that I read about was really, really, really awful. But here's what we read. One of Noah's sons, Ham, saw his father in the state of embarrassment. He discovered his father in a state of vulnerability and embarrassment. And instead of possibly attempting to protect his father from being ridiculed or looked at differently by others, Ham's first instinct is to go tell his brothers. Some want to argue that he did this out of a motivation of gossip. Hey, bros, look at dad. Why do we respect this guy so much when he acts like this? 
Others could assume that Ham wanted to help in what to do with their dad. But what seems to take place as we read on is in contrast of the behavior of Ham, who seemed to want to point out the transgression of his father and add his brothers to the group that would condemn Noah. But look at what Shem and Japheth did once they heard about their father. Here's what it says, verse 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. I don't know personally if there's a more respectful way of giving their father dignity than what Shem and Japheth did here. They took a garment, they put it across their shoulders, they walked backwards as not to see their father in the state of embarrassment and covered him so as not to see their dad in a way that was not dignified. This was an act of respect, of reverence, one that I appreciate very, very much. When my father died back in 2010, he had had a heart attack and his body laid in the apartment where he died for a while before anyone found him. Someone had to identify the body, and my half-sister chose to, primarily to save me from seeing him like that. And personally, I still appreciate that act of kindness that she showed me, not because dead bodies creep me out, even though, well, they kind of do, but because I didn't want to remember my father in that state of being. That was not about embarrassment. That was about my big sister looking out for her 30-ish year old brother at the time. Shem and Japheth had the utmost respect for their father and what his role is in the family and what it represented. Plus, they knew that God had entrusted him by name in particular to be the patriarch of the new family of God here on earth. I don't always like parallels to people in scripture to God, but Noah was known as a preacher of righteousness. And I wonder for us today how we revere and honor God. Not when he acts the fool, because our God doesn't act the fool, but in our defense of his goodness, his glory, and his power. When something difficult takes place in society, when something on the news is taking place where we feel like if God is real, he could have intervened, when a natural disaster happens or a shooting, are we quick to condemn God and wonder why he didn't stop something from happening? Or are we like Shem and Japheth who defend our Lord's honor not by trying to have every answer and every, for every possible skeptic and every skeptical question, but by trusting our God, by trusting his promises, looking at the reality that time and time and time again, where our God was faithful, faithful to us. And because of that track record, trusting that his plan and his ability to see above the clouds gives him a vantage point for all of his creation that we, you and I, will never experience, but we can trust him and what he says about himself in his word. Verse 24 and 25. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers? A couple of things that are weird about this verse that should cause us to lean in a little bit more, to study a little bit more. It's this, Ham is known here as the youngest son. Yet when the three brothers are spoken about over and over again in Scripture, Ham was named in the middle, not the last, which would be customary when different uh, siblings were talked about. It tended to have to do with birth order. So why did the Holy Spirit, through Moses, go off script 
and make the youngest son the middle name in the order of explanation of the brothers. You ready? I don't know. I have no idea. And it's okay not to know. We're going to major in the majors. But I'm grateful for the designation that Ham was the youngest son, that the scriptures actually tell us this, because without that, we would have just assumed that he was the middle child. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha! The other theological elephant in the room, why does Noah curse Ham's son Canaan and not Ham? Ham was the one that did this. Ham was the one that didn't respect his father. Where does that come from? Isn't Canaan innocent? Well, no, no one is innocent. No, not one. But this was a transgression of the father, not of the son. So why would Noah, why would God through Noah curse Ham's son? I have assumptions, not stances. Okay, I just want to be clear about that. These are some assumptions. Here they are. First, Canaan was probably cursed because our children mean more to us than even our own lives. Most of the time, I'd hope, right? Like generally, we're thinking more about the safety of our offspring than we are even of our own. Like laying down my life for any of my children wouldn't even be a question for me. Finley hasn't said her first word. She hasn't communicated really anything other in our household. She hasn't really con uh, contributed anything to our household other than keeping us awake, eating, sleeping, and pooping. That's pretty much all she's done so far. But as I laid on my bed holding her the other day, looking into her eyes as she looked at me and honestly probably didn't know who I was, and I know she can't recognize me, I knew that there was nothing in this world as I held this tiny little baby on my chest that would stop me from attempting to protect her as long as I am able to. I feel the same way about each of my children and have had similar moments with them all throughout their lives if they know it or not. But the hurting or the cursing of my children would hurt me. And any parent more than hurting oneself is something happening to your children. That's an assumption. Also, this was a generational curse, one that was not to just affect Noah's grandson in Canaan, but many generations that came after Canaan to come until Christ would defeat the hold that sin has on mankind that was populating the earth. I think it's easy to attempt with our finite minds how we think things should be done. We get all bent out of shape and to not trust God in his work because we don't understand all the things that go into the judgments of God. But God doesn't have to consider yours and my opinions before he makes decisions. He knows far more about his creation, about his church, about his people, and about this world than we will ever fathom. And yet he gives us his word where his will is found. And this word is a lamp unto our feet to be able to see more of him and be able to see more of ourselves in light of him. Verse 26. He also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Noah kind of seems like he's showing some favoritism, if we're honest. Don't you think? Like, I mean, dang. My grandson, as Noah is saying this, my grandson Canaan, the son of my youngest son Ham, ought to be a slave in probably the oldest son, Shem's, territory. And may Shem have so much territory that he gives more 
to some of his good brother in Japheth. And may Canaan, who was cursed, also be a slave, a servant to Japheth, because he is the lowest on the totem pole. Take that, Ham. That will teach you to embarrass me. Now, is that what's happening here? I don't know. It can look like that. But this can also look like one of the most petty disagreements ever amongst family. I don't know about you, but as I have greater family and I've known people for a long time and I've known people in my blood family and the family that I've married into, petty arguments take place. Petty arguments take place not only in blood family, but in church family. And, and I think it's more than just a petty argument. I think Ham's evil tendency was not something that was a mistake this one time. Sin is not just an oops. Sin is a heart condition. And if we are truly being made new, if we are a new creation in Christ, if we are being transformed, we must receive a new heart. We must become this new creation and be identified no longer by our sin, but be identified by the Son. And without Christ, we will always be sinners. We will be unable to obey, unable to want what God wants. We need an altercation with the true God. Look at how God puts it through the prophet Ezekiel 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ to Mary. Here's what it says, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake and people of Israel that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Hallelujah and amen. This is what God does. This is how he transforms you. This is what happens when you have an altercation with God. And I, when, if someone were to come to Christ, when we come to Christ, we come with our heads bowed down, not our noses up in the air, assuming that God is lucky to have us. Our relationship with God, our right standing before God, our righteousness is what right standing means, is gifted to us in Jesus. It is this relationship that we put before any other relationship. In fact, our relationship with God is what informs every relationship we have with others. Let me explain. I love my wife, Erin Riley. I love her more than anyone else on earth. She is a gift from the Lord, the greatest wife, the greatest mom I have ever seen. But even when we are annoyed with each other, even when we are not communicating well, even when uncommunicated expectations aren't being met by her to me, that doesn't change my adoration and my love 
that I have for her because she didn't choose me. I didn't choose her and she didn't choose me. God chose her for me and me for her. And God decided in his grace to allow our paths to cross when they were crossed, to have the histories we both had without one another before we met. And in God's sovereign will, he chose to bring us together while in college, to be married in 2003, to have our first child, Reagan, in 2007, our second child, Lorelai in 2008, our third child, Evangeline in 2011, and our fourth child, Boston, in 2013, and our baby girl this past Easter in 2021, Finley. None of that was accidental. None of that was the plans of man. It wasn't because we mapped this out and planned it. It was a sovereign God at work in his creation, making a people and making what we know as the Riley family. My point is that God is at work. He is working out his narrative. He is making much of himself through your life, through your history, and through your story. This life has curses and it has blessings. It has ups and downs, but our God is the author and not our assumption that we can speak our truth into reality. That's a bunch of crap. Shut the front door on that jazz. Before we conclude, I want to point out another awful interpretation that people get from the scriptures. This one I'm going to talk about a little bit more, and it's without any exegesis. It's without any real interpretation of scripture. It's based on assumptions. And as Jesus says in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that he, Jesus, was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of man. And often the hearts of man come out in how we interpret the scriptures to get the scriptures to say what our sinful hearts want it to say. They take this curse that God spoke through Noah which was brought upon Canaan, and they use it to justify racism, slavery, and, and a worldly evil that comes from the natural state of man. The argument goes something like this, is that what God wanted was because many of Canaan's descendants ended up in northern Africa, the eastern Mediterranean coast, including Arabia, but that's where they ended up. But remember, it was Canaan's descendants, not Ham's, not any of the other sons of Ham, it was Canaan's descendants that were cursed that also ended up settling in northern Africa. So the curse went on to become the justification that racist idiots used to push for slavery for the African people. It was a curse of servanthood, that they would be servants and not have the authority over others, but instead poor interpretation of scripture became the way that evil men used God's word against people to enslave an ethnicity. Even though the curse was not from anyone's descendants but Canaan's, and it pointed to this eventual judgment that would fall onto the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. See, I don't know how you hear the word racism. And if your mind just goes to the news over the past many years, and you start to think that I'm trying to be political here, shut up, I'm not. The enemy wants to spin everything to create factions amongst people. I'm saying that how you read the Bible, 
How you interpret it is so much more important than even who you vote for. Dang, I just said that. Because people, we get the Bible to say whatever our sinful hearts want it to say. And if we fall into this idiotic, foolish, and thoughtless exercise, who knows how we will influence people when it comes to God. The end of Genesis chapter 9, 28 and 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. The pattern in Genesis is to describe the total age and death of Adam's descendants. Noah lived a very long time and helped populate the earth that you and I live in. So at this point, we could close our Bibles, but don't. Because we just did a bit of an overview of the second half of Genesis chapter 9. We had some explanation of the sons of Noah had the beginning and or the redo after the flood, the brokenness of Noah to get drunk and pass out naked, the possible evil in his son Ham to attempt to ridicule and gather other onlookers to embarrass his dad, two sons that did all they could to honor their father out of reverence and respect, a curse that hurt and was misinterpreted for generations to come, and documentation of Noah's length of life and his death. So what does any of that have to do with the gospel? more than you think. See, God makes a family. And as we have read, as we continue in Genesis in the future after we take a field trip through a few other series this year, is that God's family is full of messed up people who fail, people who forget, people that have skeletons in their closet and really have a lot to be ashamed of. Sound familiar? The only difference between those in the Bible and us outside of Jesus is that our transgressions are usually documented on social media. And those in the lineage of Jesus have their sins documented in Scripture. See, Noah, a preacher of righteousness, as he's called later on in the New Testament, a man that God used to repopulate the earth, was a sinner. He sinned. He didn't hit the mark every time. And yet God used him to do God-glorifying things. Wrap your mind around that for a second, friend. You and I have failed. You and I have missed the mark, and God isn't done with us as we have breath in our lungs, and we have a gracious God who has given us his spirit to do far greater things than just breathe our way towards death. Noah made a mistake, and Ham, like we probably all have, disrespected someone who was in authority over him. We assume the worst because we expect anyone who has more responsibility or authority than we do to be better than us. But if we ever felt like we acted like that or we thought someone else was acting like they were better than us because of more responsibility or authority, we contempt, we condemn them for that too. God doesn't put authorities in place because they earned it necessarily. God puts authorities into place to teach them and us lessons. Noah got, a stup- Noah got stupid pass out drunk. And Ham wanted to show that his father wasn't all that. And yet you have two sons who were so reverent, so respectful, so grace-inspired that instead of trying to make a mockery of their dad, they didn't even look at him in his shame. Because like God sees us with all our brokenness, with all our shame, with all our sin, when God looks at us, who does he see? He sees Jesus Christ because of what Jesus has accomplished because of what Jesus has done. Let me show you Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So friends, if you struggle with doubt, if you struggle with your worth, if you struggle with how others see you, look at how God sees you. He sees Jesus, the perfect author and sustainer of your faith. I don't know if I truly remember that all the time. I wonder if I thought about that all the time, if I would ever feel down, depressed, beaten up emotionally. But see, this is some superhero stuff right here. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, when challenged with the reality that he might die for his faith, he said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because he'd be with God. This is how Paul saw his life, at least later on in his ministry. And I want to get there. I want when this life is exhausting or I'm feeling like I'm being treated unfairly or my motives are being questioned or trust is lost or money is funny or my heart is hardening, I want to have this point of view. And Paul goes on and says the words I need to hear daily when it comes to my identity being placed in Jesus. Here's what he says later on in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. If you're going to put Paul in prison, he convert your guards. If you said you were going to kill him, he'd say, great, I'll get to be with Jesus. No matter what Paul went through, he lived a life that was serious about the cause of Christ because he knew what he had been forgiven from. And check it, Paul was one of the most religious people ever. And if what we do saves us, he might have been someone that could get away with that. But he knew that everything he did was garbage. In Greek, it's a much worse word. Shem and Japheth? honored their father by not seeing him as one who was defined by his mistakes, but by the authority and responsibility given to him as the patriarch of the family and the world that was about to be repopulated. As hard as it is to understand and agree with Noah and God's curse of Canaan, there is a point I wish we'd all see, that how we raise our families, how we influence our families, that we're entrusted them, that God has given us our families, that we now would entrust our families with the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best blessing any of us can ever do to combat the curse, not just of Canaan, but the curse of sin since the garden. Our kids don't need the best toys. I'll go as far to say our kids don't even need the best schools. Oh, dang. Did I just say that? Yes. See, our kids need the best news, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wanting the best for our kids is not wrong, but wanting them to succeed in life and not in eternity is cosmic travesty. Praying with your kids and reading the scriptures are great, but can I give you another piece I think we need to supplement with our time of prayer and in the scriptures with our children? It's, it's going to be pretty simple. Talk with your kids about the gospel. Talk about grace. Talk about what a game changer it is that we can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. 
how he's forgiven us of our sins, and how we can inherit eternal life. There have been times in my parenting where my kids have bothered me. They've done something that I'm just like, why would you do that? And when God reminds me, or when I'm listening at least, there have been times where I've gotten to show my kids grace and I've gotten to be able to describe to them what grace from God looks like because of the way I treat them after they failed. See, I don't do this as much as I should. But please, church family, if God has already entrusted you a family or you are someday going to have a family, remember these words. Look for opportunities to talk with those that God has entrusted you with the gospel of grace, especially your children. We studied today the lineage of Noah's three sons and the curse that would be given to Ham's son, Canaan, which unfortunately people for centuries have used to justify their evil belief that skin color dictates worth. Listen here, your worth, if you're black, white, or any other shade of color, is dictated by Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. God makes us uniquely in his image. But identities, but as God looks at us, he identifies us by his son, which is exactly how we ought to see ourselves and others who claim Jesus Christ. And if someone is yet to commit to Jesus Christ, they are still made in the image of God and their skin color, their culture, their past history do not make them better or worse. It makes them unique. And God has the power to make every tribe, every tongue, every nation know that he is God and draw people to himself. Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10, as, as the lamb is there to open the scrolls, John has this vision of what eternity is going to look like. And here's what he says, after that, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. As a mostly Irish Caucasian man living in the 21st century, I am so grateful that eternity, heaven, glory, whatever you want to call it, is going to be so diverse, so multicultural. But the one thing that will bind and does bind each and every person to one another as a family in heaven is the blood of the lamb shed for the sins of the world. And we, by his grace, gifted to us in faith, can be drawn into relationship by God. And our reaction is repentance and trust in God's only son, Jesus Christ, May he get the glory and honor and praise through our lives today and every day that he gives us breath in our lungs to serve and love him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we walk through what we're going to consider the end of Genesis, at least for now, until we go back to it later, God, I pray that over the past few months as we've studied the first nine chapters of Genesis, that they would be things that we would put into practice, things that we've learned from your word as we've seen the origins, as we've realized that this entire Bible, God, that you've gifted us with, your entire word, points to your son. God, I thank you for what we got to study today. I thank you for the things that you taught me. Lord, I pray that the things that I said were honoring to you and that you would use them to make disciples. God, I also ask that if 
anyone chooses to give towards the ministry of COV for the work of your spirit through the people here, that God, you would use that offering to make much of yourself, make much of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the time that we get to have together as a community each week. May we put into practice loving one another because you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.